We're uh, in a two-part series, last Sunday and this, kind of along a New Year's theme, taking possession of what God provides. This teaching, more directly on that topic, last week introducing it with the taking of Jericho, Joshua and Jericho. Today, learning to possess what God has already given We're going to try and draw some lessons in, in the next 30 minutes from nine chapters. I know, fear not. We'll just kind of fly over nine chapters and get three or four lessons. Uh, the, the key idea of these two teachings and this teaching probably more particularly is, is just this. Just because God has provided something for me doesn't mean I possess it. I think that applies to absolutely everything, all things spiritual. Salvation itself isn't received just because it has been provided. I mean, in spite of all the hair splitting and arguments from all sorts of theological systems to the contrary. The Bible really couldn't be clearer. If you look at 1 John 2, 1 and 2, my little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, that word, in distinction to expiation, propitiation has to do with um, satisfying the just the justice of God, the just wrath of God against sin. He, this is Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And then, and then this sentence, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. How many people does that include? I think that's a safe bet, right? In spite of what our Calvinist brothers and sisters do with those words, so that world, in their view, tends to mean just some people from every nation of the world, so that the whole world is covered, but not everybody in the world. I don't think it works. But that's, that's the way they deal with those, with those texts. God so loved the world. The texts like that. That doesn't mean everybody in the world, in their thinking. I think it does. But the point stands anyway. Jesus provided propitiation, this bearing of God's wrath against sinners. And he did this, the Bible says, for the whole world. Of course, the whole world isn't saved. People must, people must receive the redemptive work that God has provided. There's a difference between provision and possession. I don't think that's rocket science. I mean, you can see that right there in the text. So, so my point here is that apart from the, the showered blessings of sheer common grace in creation, rain falls on the just and on the unjust, food comes out of the ground for the good and the bad, apart from those kinds of blessings, what holds true 
for salvation holds true for absolutely everything God gives us in the spiritual realm. His providing it and our possessing it aren't exactly the same thing. That's what we're drilling down into this morning. And that's what I think is so important about these nine chapters, about two-thirds of the way through the book of Joshua. They're all about possessing the land. They are in the land. God has brought them into the land. But it hasn't been all parceled out and taken the way God wants them to possess it. So that's, that's these verses, these chapters, probably uh, more than almost any other place in the Bible, give a nice, simple, vivid picture of why some people possess what God has provided and why some people don't possess what God has provided. I mean, he brought them into this land supernaturally, crossing bodies of water on dry ground. God gave them their entry into the land, and it was clearly a supernatural work. The walls of Jericho fell down. That's never going to happen again for them. But now they have to possess it. Or to, to emphasize it differently, now they have to possess it. So in other words, God giving it and their possessing it are two things, not one thing. So how is this to be done? How do we enter into all that God has promised? How do we possess what God has provided? Is everything possessed spiritually in the same way? If not, what are the different ways that we, like Israel, move into what God has promised and provided? That's the topic in the next three and a half hours. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for... We thank you for our church, how good it is to sit here, crack open our Bibles, sing praise to your name, and fill our minds with your word. What a treasure. We feel blessed. Come among us and do your work by your Holy Spirit. Work on both sides of the pulpit to accomplish your will and way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Joshua 13, 1 to 6. Let's start here. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, this is flattering, isn't it? You are old and advanced in years. And then here, and there remains, remains very much land to possess. They're in it but they're not possessing it. This is all the land that yet remains, all of the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Gershurites from the Shehor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Escalon, Gath, and Ekron, those of the Avim, I'm with you, just a sec, there. In the south, all the land of the Canaanites and Merah, 
that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, the land of the Gebelites, and all Lebanon toward the sunrise from Baal Gad below Mount Hermon to Labo Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Misrethroth, Ma'am, even all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Like they have to be involved. Only allot the land to Israel as an inheritance, as I have commanded you. You should try reading those names in front of a bunch of people. Passage sets the stage now for the coming events in the next seven or eight chapters of Joshua. And, and we see it once this difference between entering the land and possessing the land. Even though the last eight chapters record some incredible victories and some uh, unbelievable struggles, the first eight chapters of the book of Joshua, that's not to be thought of as the end of the story. The land had to be parceled out. Names were to be attached to boundaries. That would be established. So they had to occupy and take charge of the inheritance God had given them. It was called the promised land. Because God promised it to them. Don't let all those awkward names in verse 2 to 6 keep you from seeing what's, what's there kind of in simplicity. These verses are really important. God commands the people of Israel to mark out the land they don't possess yet. Mark it out as though they were already going to be able to occupy it because God promised it to them. They were to mark out the land. Get this. They were to mark out the land, establish the boundaries, while all the enemies were still there in front of them. That's a good way to think about a new year. They were to mark out the land and the boundaries while all the enemies were still there. In other words, they were not to think the job was done just because they had gotten into the promised land. And even more important and perhaps more relevant to us, they were not to think that the land wasn't for them just because the enemies were still living in it. That didn't negate the promise. The obstacles didn't negate the promise. Because of God's promise and love, the land was to be treated as though it were already in their possession. Here's what I'm saying. There was to be no excuse for resting in their present location. No excuse. They are to resolutely refuse to rest with the job half done. There is more to be possessed and they are immediately called to get on with it. You can imagine the people in the promised land. They're there sitting around the fire at night. Boy, we've waited a long time to get into this land. I thought we'd never get here. That whole generation dying off in the wilderness. It is great to be home. This portion is quite enough. Why risk life and limb to move on to those other God-assigned allotments? After all, we're in the promised land, aren't we? What more do we need? We're here where God said we would be. 
be easy. It would just be so easy to settle into that kind of attitude. And what the Lord says to the Israelites through Joshua, it's really the same kind of thing that Paul shouts to the church in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. One thing I do is this works. He's doing it. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining toward what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And then he says that those of us who are mature think this way. What way? Well, all this stuff, forgetting what lies behind, pressing on. I'm, I'm still pressing on. We used to sing that. Remember? long time ago in church, I'm pressing on the upward way. Higher ground, I think, was that hymn. Just, that's what I'm doing. And if you're mature in Christ, he says, that's, that's the only way your brain works. What is there left to possess? Where do I want to go? What am I moving into in 2020? Then and now... God's promise, provision, and blessing, it doesn't usually just fall into our laps while we're meditating and thinking about other things. There's an art to spiritual possession. There will be no exact repetition of the falling walls of Jericho. And what I want to do now, don't worry, we're well into it. I want to look at some of the forms spiritual possession can take in different sets of circumstances. So, point number one. First, there is possession by persistent faith in the promise of God. And I want to read to you, it's a little lengthy, one of my favorite accounts in the whole Bible. It's from Joshua 14, 6 to 14. It's too long to put up there. You have to look, you have to do the actual work now of looking it up in the Bible. Joshua 14, 6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, said to Joshua, It's good to read it, but maybe not listen to it. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to, I just couldn't resist that. Okay, so Caleb comes to Joshua, and here's what he says, verse 7. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. Remember, Caleb and Joshua went in. They must have had a bond as they spoke together. They came back and said, it's, it's good. We can do this. Ten said, no, we can't. And God judged all the people. Verse 8, but my brothers, Caleb still speaking, but my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, this is Joshua, talk, Caleb talking to Joshua, Moses swore on that day saying, surely the land on which your feet has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, 
Behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I love this. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. He's not. But, but that heart is a wonderful thing. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war, for going, for coming. So now, 12, give me this hill country, which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him, and he gave him... And he gave Horeb to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Is there a better story in the whole Bible than that? I absolutely love it. Caleb's an old man now. He's 85. And as all the parcels of land are being distributed... He comes to Joshua, his buddy, Joshua, with a request. You can't help but think Caleb has to have a special place in Joshua's heart. These two old soldiers, they take a moment to remember the good old days. When they went in and spied out the land and were faithful to the Lord, they were the only two who came and said, God is able to give us the land. Caleb says, Joshua, when we went to spy out the land, God promised me I could have all the land I walked on. Verse 9. Give me that land. Now that expedition was 45 years ago. 45 years ago. That was the last time Caleb's foot touched that land. It's a long time. But not because of anything wicked on his part. It's been 45 years since he's been in there because God judged the people of Israel. Remember, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So he suffered. He suffered solely because of the grumbling of the people. It wasn't Joshua and it wasn't Caleb. And yet here he is. He's 45 years later. He's 85 years. And he goes, now, about that promise. I think stuff like that just pleases God to bits. About that promise. I'm still ready to take hold of it. And and you're looking at a man. Think about this for a minute. You're looking at a man without an ounce of... Of bitterness, it wasn't his fault that he couldn't get into the land for 45 years. He's not angry. There's no doubt. There's no bitterness in him. 40 years of his life were spent just sharing in the judgment of God on the doubters and the grumblers. He wasn't one of them. And now he still seems as optimistic and confident in the Lord as he was back then. He got old, but he never got sour. He never turned into a religious deadbeat. He could have found good reason, but he's not a complainer. He doesn't put himself on the sidelines. I love the way Caleb recognizes he's been blessed. I was looking at that in 14, 10, and 11. 
the Lord has kept me alive. Just as he said these 40 years. I am this day 85 years old. I'm still strong. You're looking at a guy. Why is he saying, is he bragging? No, that's not what he's doing. He's looking at his life and he's saying, why why has God kept me alive and given me strength? There's got to be a reason. Because God doesn't just do anything. He's a very wise, omnipotent being. It's got to be a reason he's kept me strong and healthy and alive all these years. Caleb knows that God always blesses for a purpose. And Caleb's mind has a big, bold notice pinned to its bulletin board. He's still got a call from God. This is, this is the real purpose-driven life. It's no secret, you and I both, I encounter people in church all the time, nowhere near 85, who assume just because they've been serving the Lord in some role in the church, maybe for 15 or 20 years, shoot, must be time for Florida and the beach and summer at the cottage. Let somebody else do it. I'm done. Let one of those new people come and do it. What a gem Caleb is. I'm still strong. I'm not stupid. I can do things. Through all those years of wandering in the wilderness, through the passing of half a lifetime, he never forgot God's call on his life. He never let God's promise slip into some dim region of the memory. He probably said it to himself every day for 45 years. He seasons his life with the call of God. He's still alert to this opportunity. It hasn't presented itself for 45 years. Now a door is opening. Bang, he's right there. I believe God is thrilled, thrilled to see people take stock of where they are on their spiritual journey. I believe he loves to fix his favor on people who never quit. I believe the greatest joy comes to those who say, this inactivity has been going on long enough. What am I doing? My moment is here. It's now. I will not let this go unfinished. Let's get on with the business at hand. Man, you can apply this in so many ways, this wonderful story. How long are you going to wait to be baptized? What are you doing? How long before you anchor down into a solid devotional life? Did you get through the Bible last year? Are you going to do it this year? How long are you going to wait? What will it take to make you go to church regularly? Are you going to go another year slogging around every three weeks to church? Look at Joshua. Let's get it done. I'm here. What are you going to do the next 10 years? Are you going to live it never leading one person to Christ? When are you going to make things right with that brother or sister in the church? You've been carrying a grudge? How long? When are you going to get this done? Too much time has been wasted, Caleb says. Enough! I'm not getting any younger. Give me that land. I'm ready. Let's go. And everyone said, boy, that's anemic. I love it. I love it. I am, I am not going to let 
time just slip by doing nothing for Jesus. I'm not going to do it, Caleb says. Two. This possession by conflict. Not everyone is exactly the same as Caleb. Let me give you another account. It's in Joshua 17, 14 through 18. Then the people of Joshua, sorry, then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, and here's the the important point. Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? And Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourself in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us, yet all the Canaanites who dwell on the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beth Sheen and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. And then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh, You're a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours, for though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it. To its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites. Though they have chariots of iron. And though they are strong. So now. We learn immediately. Possession of promise. Doesn't come about in the same way every time. These lessons. We're going to look at three of them. You have to take them together. Apply them together. The people of Joseph. They come to Joshua. They've got a complaint. Let me just try and zero in on it. Make it a little easier for you. It's in verse 14. The people of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion? Although I am a numerous people since the Lord has blessed me. So the complaint is pretty clear. Our our chunk is too small. There's a lot of us. We need room to grow. And, and you haven't given, or God hasn't given it to us. Something's not fair here. They had lots of families, lots of people, not enough land. And they're looking for more room. Either Joshua or God has been stingy with them. But the real problem was different than their perception of it. And Joshua's reply is pretty blunt And he makes clear what the real issue is. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. This is fascinating. These tribes weren't short on space. What they were short on was obedience. But it's easier to say, we're short on space. Their cramped living quarters were their own doing. Something something profound is being unfolded in this account, and I hope you see it. Though they weren't 
thinking about some of their past decisions, allowing the Canaanites just to stay. They weren't thinking about some of their past decisions. They were still reaping the results of them, and I think that happens quite a bit in our lives. Here was the real problem. Ephraim was forced to live up in the hills. The hills weren't as good for farming as the plains, but they didn't go down into the plains because the Canaanites were there, and the text clearly says the Canaanites had chariots of iron. But there's more. When Ephraim finally grew strong, she still didn't drive the Canaanites out of the land because she had gotten used to being near them. They probably came to be seen as decent people, not monsters. And so Israel did what lots of us do with things that are difficult to change. She just made adjustments. She lived with the things she was commanded to drive out. And here's the point. She was free to do that. I mean, God didn't strike her dead. Life went on pretty much as usual. Only, only she started to feel cramped, confined. That's, that's what happens when God gives provision for growth but it's challenging and it's costly and so we silently choose to stay where we are. And you can. But you end up with a puny life. Joshua's response is right on the button. I can see him. Why are you coming to me? I'm not the tooth fairy. The land is there. It's been given to you. God has promised to be with you. Get on with it. There's a cost to growth. The issue is clear. The issue is clear. And here's the lesson. How, 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 badly, how badly do they want the land? Everybody wants a great prayer life. Everybody wants a knowledge of the Bible. Everybody wants a closer walk with the... Everybody. How How badly? There's, there's, there's things that have to be pushed out. There's work to be done. Note the difference between these tribes and Caleb. These people limited their horizons to what they already possessed. They could see nothing further. They knew there was land out there for the taking, but they chose to see only forests that had to be cleared... 15, and enemies that had to be driven out, verse 16. Oh man, how quickly we can become spiritually sightless. We, we lose all perspective. Can, can you imagine the people, these people who had seen the walls of Jericho fall in front of their eyes? They were there. I can't, I don't know, up in the hills there's like trees and we've got to chop them down and clear the land. I, I can't see any way out of this. It's cute, but it gets close to home with a lot of us.
So Joshua says, you don't need to complain up to me. Uh, you really don't need to get on your knees and pray about this. You have all the land you really want, and you have all the promise you really need. What in the world are you doing? You have all the land you really want, and you have all the promise you really need. Boy, that story just slices so close to the bone. You can't just sit and wait for growth to happen. It never comes that way. I love that 18th verse. But the hill country shall be yours, though it is a forest. Clear it. You shall clear it and possess it. Drive out the Canaanites. Though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. Those, those words remove all doubt from the issue. They had the ability to do what God told them to do. God, the God who felled the walls of Jericho, he was on their side and there was no reason to doubt their capacity to take the land, enter into all God's promise, but they did have to confront their lack of desire. Everything has a price tag. This is God's way of testing our hearts. Okay, Last, third. It's, it's similar to the second point, but slightly different, and I hope I can make you see it. Finally, there's possession by capacity. Joshua 19. Are you all still with me? Okay. I'm going to look at verse 9 and then verse 47. The inheritance of the people of Simeon, these are the tribes now, formed part of the territory of the people of Judah. Because the portion of the people of Judah was too large for them, the people of Simeon obtained an inheritance in the midst of their inheritance. Now look at 47. When the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them, the people of Dan went up and fought against Leshem. And after capturing it and striking it with the sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, calling Leshem Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor. I don't want to get bogged down in a bunch of details. It's a fascinating passage. And, 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 and there's just some little incidents in the whole scheme that make us wonder why God dispersed the land the way he did it. Because it looks like he didn't know what he was doing. For example, the land of Judah, the text says, was too big for them. So they ended up sharing it with Simeon. The land of Dan was too small for them. And they ended up pushing back its borders, taking possession of others. So there seems to be this principle of elasticity in the whole process. Possession was relative to, to not just desire and might, but capacity in some strange way. Allowance is made for expansion, and allowance is made for diminishment. Why? I mean, what was God doing here? What was his point? What was he trying to demonstrate and teach? I actually think... These Old Testament accounts are sort of uh, like prophetic glimpses 
into the same concept that Jesus described in his well-known account of the master, remember, who distributed talents to his servants, and then he comes back and one of them just hit it in the ground, he gets judged, the others multiply what was given to them and they're rewarded for their faithfulness. And at the close, at the close, Luke has these words from Jesus that aren't part of the parable. They aren't parabolic, they're actual teaching words now from Jesus applying the parable. And here's what Jesus says. You don't have this reference. It's Luke 19, 26. I should have said that before and you could have looked it up while I was yammering. Luke 19, 26. And and here's what Jesus says. At the end of that parable. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The one who has more, he gets more. The one who has not, even what he has, there is something there, but it'll be taken away. So, so. The greatest reward for devotion is increased capacity, increased possession. The greatest danger in apathy, laziness, indifference, is increased spiritual emptiness and dementia. How like Jesus, our Lord, to be, he's the way, the truth, and the life So truthful, so honest. He always comes with grace and warning. And and he's saying, and it's the lesson from Joshua, things rarely stand still in our hearts, whether we're thinking about it or not. Grace is gloriously given. Increased capacity is the reward for faithfulness, like Caleb. That's the whole point of this parable. It's it's not just a story about what these servants received, but how they used what they received and how that reveals their understanding of what's going on. There's possession by faith, Joshua. There's possession by conflict, got all the land you need. Get up and clear the forest and do what I told you to do with the Canaanites. And there's possession by capacity. Faithfulness brings more capacity. Laziness and indifference never leave you sta- never leave you holding what you had initially. You lose it. So so this this is what it means to seek God's kingdom. You need to put you need to put meaning into a religious Phrase like that. There's no possession by heredity. There's no possession by wishing. There's no possession by dreaming. Here's what's going to happen. This is not a prophecy. This is just... Anybody knows this. There will be people in this church who at the end of 2020 will apply these kind of things to their hearts. And at the end of 2020, will find themselves with more joy 
surprised by more of God's spirit and presence, rewarded by more of a sense of fruitfulness and meaning in life than they ever thought possible as they follow Jesus, like these examples. And they'll be amazed. Also, in this church, at the end of 2020, there will be some people who will be Christian in name only. And they won't even have the capacity to have that bother them anymore. And it'll happen as the three principles get applied all year long. So keep the book of Joshua close. And think about Caleb. Don't just be good. Be good for something in the kingdom of God. And the greatest reward is the expansion of your own heart and life. And everyone said...